Well, welcome to the Hoon of Wonks on the Kaka, Janae Tiptrani from Interest.co. Great to see you here in the Press Gallery's little studio. Hey, Bernard. Good to be here. Yeah. We're tucked away here in the bowels and nothing is going to get through these walls. But all around us right now, there are anti-vax and anti-mandate protesters and have been here for most of the week. You work in the building. Um, how has it felt? What have you seen? Well... Bernard, as you say, it feels quite safe inside the building, but um, walking around outside, there is a, uh, a bit of animosity in, in the crowd. There's a lot of anger. Um, and I suspect there's also people with uh, a range of different views, a range of different things that they're upset about. Um, as I have said before, you know, we're in fairly unprecedented times. We've had um, governments around the world lock people down, require them to get vaccinated. Um, do all sorts of things that's created a lot of uncertainty. So I can understand that some people, a lot of us, are, um, you know, a bit riled up about the situation or, you know, uncertainty makes us, makes people respond in different ways. So I do understand why people, why there is a group of people who are um, perhaps scared, perhaps upset. There, there might be a range of emotions. But there is no denying it that the vibe out there is unpleasant um, and and aggressive. Because you've so, seen a few yes. protests in your time, thousands of people walking up the steps to Parliament, standing in front of the steps there. There might be a barrier, but hardly any police presence. There might be some shouting and singing and placards. But what's been different about this one compared to others? You will have seen the uh, various uh, climate marches, yeah. uh, Black Lives Matter, the various um, groundswell protests. Mm. You know, what's different about this one? Well, I think there is a lot of angst and perhaps there is um, more aggression. Also, um, you, you know, the, the spread of misinformation, um, some of the, the things that are circulating are, are fairly extreme and, and winding, winding people up. So I think probably the, the, mis, the misinformed views behind some of it is are different. But on the flip side, I think that we need to realise that things have not been normal over the past few years. So it has been an unprecedented time in history. So an unprecedented response from some people, I think, is to be accepted. I don't um, endorse violence or violence ideas, and I think a lot, there are some violent ideas, and, and it's terrible. But um, I think it's sort of to be expected that there will be a group of people who will be upset. Mm. So um, You have a different view, Ben. Yeah, I do, uh, which is that... Um, the sorts of um, spitting, shoving, egg-throwing, death threats, nooses uh, in this protest repeatedly are unlike anything we've seen before. The um, repeated law-breaking of um, parking and blocking roads that hasn't, hasn't been challenged by the police. We have laws that are not being enforced. And I think part of the reason it's gotten out, a bit out of hand and been so... Um, persistent and difficult in the last three or four days is that on Tuesday when they first arrived, um, the police weren't here at all and people were allowed to set up camp, park their cars anywhere. They weren't even being ticketed, cars weren't being towed away. Uh, uh, tents which uh, aren't supposed to be there for any length of time have been there for days and days. People have been coming and going, putting their tents there. These are people who have deliberately chosen to put their own families and the rest of us at risk, knowing that if they do catch COVID, they're going to swamp our hospitals and stop people with um, 
normal health conditions, heart attacks and the likes, from using the hospitals, which are the publics. Mm. And uh, they're doing it in a way which demands rights and freedoms without accepting responsibilities of the social contract they are effectively have signed up to by living in New Zealand and paying their taxes and being part of their community, being part of these communities. Um, I think we've had long enough of trying to engage with people and, and uh, showing them the facts and being reasonable. I think it's time that um, people ab abide by the law, uh, have peaceful protests and move on. Mm. And um, I also think that we shouldn't be complacent about the depth of feeling and the nastiness of the messages coming out of some of the people attached to these groups. They are exactly the same and have come from exactly the same um, cesspit that uh, uh, brewed up uh, Brexit and Trump and the Christchurch attacker. Um, a, and a report out this week through... Oh, this Department of the core putting those things on the same. Yeah, well, I've seen the liberal. death threats to mm. the reporters in the mm. press gallery. Yeah. I've received those death threats that the handwritten letters in um, mailboxes. Mm. Um, we've seen what happens when these sorts of um, uh, torrents of misinformation go into millions of people's uh, feeds. The algorithmic um, tools yeah. that spread these around are making our democracies ugly places, they're putting them at risk, and they're putting public health at risk. There are millions of people dead now after two years in which the people uh, believing this misinformation and the people who are feeding the misinformation, often state-sponsored um, groups in Russia and China, uh, have led to the deaths, to the uh, clearly identifiable deaths of people whose lives would have been saved if they'd been vaccinated and mm. used masks. Instead. Issues of science and public health became um, political uh, playthings and uh, it has cost people's lives and democracies, one of the greatest in the world, America's, almost fell this year because of it mm. and remains under threat. We've got Britain, uh, a place that um, in the most self-destructive way uh, pulled out of um, Europe and uh, put a man in place there who was the main man behind this drive to get out of Europe who is a serial liar and has um, presided over the unnecessary deaths of hundreds of thousands of British yeah. people and proceeded to uh, put laws in place and then um, didn't think they applied to him and thought he could get away with it. And yeah. I, 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 it may sound like I'm being over the top here and the people are going, gee, that's not the New Zealand way. Well, no, this isn't the New Zealand way. These protests, this misinformation, this um, angry, uh, willingness to commit crime and violence is not in the New Zealand way, but it's become a part of this part of the New Zealand community because of the misinformation that's been spread around. For example, yeah. just this morning, uh, a Polish Twitter account that is clearly one of these, um, you know, rights and freedom bot network accounts was throwing in a, an image uh, into the um, hashtags around this um, uh, convoy freedom march in New Zealand, referring to some of the incidents in yesterday at Parliament uh, with a recipe for a Molotov cocktail. Mm. And uh, we can all say, oh, that's just um, 
decades are uh, big noting themselves and it's all performative. But exactly, and 99% of it is, but the 1% is one guy, and they're always guys, who do something awful. Yeah, um, you're right. And I think, the, I think it is important to take threats seriously and to not um, accept violence or anything like that. But I think in terms of the police, it's also that balance of letting people protest and um, trying to not escalate the situation. I think the police have done a very good job trying to keep things calm, but um, they do need to put an end to it now. And I think a lot of people in Wellington think, okay, great, you've, you've said your bit. Now, you've said it for quite a few days. You've had a lot of airtime uh, with uh, media organisations live streaming the protests, which I, I think is unnecessary now. Um, and, and now enough's enough. You know, deliver your message, and it's, it's fair. You say your bit. Everyone can say their bit. That's part of democracy. And move on. On the topic of moving on, let's go to the minimum <laughs> wage, where uh, Michael Wood, the employment minister, announced today there would be a 6% increase in the minimum wage to... $21.20. And uh, tell us what you think, this, how this fits into our current monetary and fiscal environment. Mm, look, I thought it was an interesting move, actually, a 6% rise, because as everyone listening to this podcast will know, inflation is one of the big uh, themes, uh, economic themes of our time, where the cost of living is rising a lot. Um, now, when you increase wages, that adds to that inflationary pressure. So in some ways, I was quite um, surprised that the government lifted the minimum wage by 6%. I thought it could have lifted it by a little bit less. Now, Labour has actually, the, the Labour-led government has been lifting it by fairly significant portions, like around 5-6% over the last few years. It continued that uh, trend. It is a bit slower, this 6% one. If you look at the last three years, we've gone from 15 bucks to 20 bucks. Uh, in total, uh, on average per year, that's a bit higher than 6%. I think the year before it was 5.8%, then 6.8%, then 7.3, then 4.8. Yeah. Um, so it's, 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 uh, it's on the... It's on par. It's on par towards the bottom end of the range of what they could have done. And certainly if you look at, look at it as a real wage increase, there is no real wage increase. So if you yeah. measured this minimum wage increase in real wage increase terms, you've gone from 3 4 5% to naught. And um, I see what you're saying about, you know, uh, perhaps the government could have uh, cut the Reserve Bank and some small businesses some slack by doing a three or four percenter. But that would have meant a real wage drop for those people at yes. the bottom of the spectrum. And um, also you've got the likes of the CTU calling for that minimum wage to go up to the living wage, which would have implied... Um, close to $23 yeah. a, an hour, which is, you know, 14%. That's probably a bit over the top. But um, uh, I, I think it's an interesting move where they've gone for the essentially zero in, yes. in real terms. And it, it, it is interesting, actually. And it is interesting that um, the government is moving in, in a different direction to the Reserve Bank and, uh, you know, which wants to try to cool inflation. Now, I'm not, I, I don't really want to pass judgment on whether 6% is the right increase or not. That's uh, not the role <laughs> that I want to play on this podcast. But I do think that uh, politically it's, it was a good move from the government because now when Grant Robertson gets attacked by National by Simon Bridges uh, for 
having living costs, the, the increase in living costs being greater than the increase in wages, Grant can say, actually, we've lifted the, the minimum wage by the same amount as inflation. Um, and this actually went against the advice that MB provided the government. MB suggested an increase to only $21, not $21.20. Um, and it made that recommendation on the basis of what inflation was when it made that recommendation in November. Inflation was, the, the latest figures were a little bit slower. Um, and MB was worried that, you know, if you put the wage up too much, those co- businesses that are struggling due to COVID, it's hospitality, uh, retail, admin, manufacturing, um, they would really struggle because a lot of those minimum wage workers uh, actually work in their, those sectors. I bet but their wages went up by you know more than three or four percent. MB are a bit mean yes. on this, and remember they've been um, saying exactly the same thing: don't put it up much for three or four years. Yeah. Um, the government, after this agreement with New Zealand First, did put it up um, by double-digit amounts, and there are a lot of complaints from small businesses, from National, from others saying. Oh, this is going to cost thousands of jobs. Unemployment's going to go up. Where are we now? 3.2% mm. unemployment. And when you uh, start to look at the studies, which are starting to come through now from all around the world, and here NZIR did a good one, the uh, big fears about rising minimum wages actually costing employment have not been borne out. Yeah. And uh, New Zealand's minimum wage has actually been one of the few really effective ways for incomes at the lower end to be ratcheted up and to be frank, slightly faster than some of those at the middle and the upper end, Mm. to the point now where our minimum wage is a percentage of the uh, median uh, wage across the economy is one of the highest in the OECD, which I think is a good thing. And um, certainly when you look at what's happened in America, one of the most effective ways that they have increased their wages is for minimum wages uh, at state level and some of the federal minimum wages to be increased. Mm. Um, and in some cases, their minimum wages are still under $10 US an hour wow. compared to twenty-one twenty here. Uh, and um, it has been an effective way of, uh, of lifting incomes for, the lo- for those on lower incomes. I think one of the issues though is because it's risen so fast in the last four years, there now is a temptation by a lot of smaller businesses to essentially uh, overrule that, not by not paying the minimum the, the minimum wage per hour as reported to um, uh, the uh, um, labour inspectorate, but to have people work longer hours, for people to not be paid sick leave, you know these sorts of uh, conditions things, and I think one of the sort of underlying trends in the last decade, particularly in that small business, retail, uh, hospitality, uh, food service, uh, taxis, that sort of thing, is that people are actually working for much longer and getting paid the minimum wage. And the most obvious rort is around these liquor stores in Auckland where the um, students have come in. Uh, They're being paid for their 20 hours a week but are working 60 hours a week. They're maybe paid in inverted commas the minimum wage but actually getting much less than that and that's where I I think one of the risks here is that unless you police uh, particularly migrant abuse around uh, minimum wage increases that can be uh, eaten away by um, uh, abuse at the edges. Yeah yeah Yeah. but it'll be interesting to see the upward pressure actually on uh, wages generally because I know government is paying the living wage so the uh, cleaners and hospitality uh, service people uh, that the government 
contracts uh, are being paid the living wage. So that, that does actually put, it's quite a bit of upward pressure on wages. And, uh, you know, I think it, it's going to take someone smarter than me to figure out whether the right balance is being struck. Because if uh, wages put upward pressure on inflation, then that higher inflation does hurt uh, low income earners the most as well. So I, I, don't, I don't know how that right that's balance interesting. is struck. Yeah, that interesting, that, that idea of a wage price spiral, that mm. when you put up wages, employers are naturally and rightly going to be able to pass that on as a price increase. Uh, what we've seen over the last you know, couple of decades really is that a lot of employers have not been able to pass on their cost yeah. increases in higher wage increase. So what you normally see uh, in what we've been told has happened is that margins have been squeezed, uh, profit margins have been squeezed. But when you actually look at what's being reported, look at the taxes being paid, um, profits are up very strongly um, in the last two years. Mm. Um, they've more than doubled, according to the um, Stats NZ national accounts, to um, by 19 billion to 26 billion in the last two years. And um, when you look at certain sectors, the ones with market power, like fuel retailing, building materials, uh, supermarkets, banks, and the like, their profit margins have expanded and. You could argue one of the reasons we have inflation is because companies, duopolies with market power have um, aggressively increased their prices mm. by more than their costs. Yeah, and I think that's a good point is that th this is uh, different sectors are differently affected. So whilst looking at the numbers on aggregate is interesting, different pockets will be experiencing quite different things and those sectors that have so much market power definitely need more of a look in. Yeah, uh, and it all it, it was a good point. But it also all of this feeds in though to the Reserve Bank's thinking in the next couple of weeks. We're going to have a decision on February the twenty third, so that's um, the week after next. Mm. Uh, and there's some talk of a fifty basis point rate hike coming through with these various inflationary pressures. You know, inflation around six percent expected to be you know potentially as high as seven percent in the March quarter before it starts to wind down. We've just seen the um, US um, Consumer Price Inflation Index rise 7.5% annualised in January. That was higher than expected. The Fed now is, there's talk about a 50 basis point hike in mm. uh, on March the 13th when they um, get going again with their first rate hike post COVID. So, um, you know, this is all starting to feed through into, you know, higher interest rates and uh, it'll be interesting to see whether uh, that starts to cool things down. Yeah, no, for sure. A and I guess just given uh, inflation is coming from a number of things, I mean, it's partly coming from demand because we've had those lower interest rates that's encouraged people to go out and borrow and that's put up asset prices, that's made asset owners feel rich, made them spend more, you know, so that's something that interest rates control. But then something that the Reserve Bank can't control is those supply chain constraints. You know, it can't make... Um, I don't know, countries that are having geopolitical problems get, get cheaper oil and get it here more seamlessly. So, um, you know, there's a limit to what the Reserve Bank can do. And the Reserve Bank has been leading the pack, actually, internationally. So that's why it'd also be interesting to see if it, it, it hikes by 25 or 50. Something else that I'm looking forward to is the guidance I'm hoping the bank will provide on what it will do with its bond buying program. Mm -hmm. 
So, okay, tighten your seatbelts, people. This is an interesting <laughs> topic. Um, so it's bought these all these bonds, right? Bonds is an asset, it's debt um, from the government, $54 billion worth. It's got this massive portfolio. It became a massive player in this market in order to lower interest rates. Now it's thinking, hold on, we need to actually reduce some of that bond holding so that should we want to buy heaps of bonds again in the future to lower interest rates to help with the crisis, currently the bank doesn't really have that much capacity to do that because it's already such a big player. So it wants to become a smaller player again to clear the decks ahead of something in the future. And the way in which it might do this is something that I'm hoping to get some guidance on. And it's this perverse situation where the rules are that the bank, or the rules that the government has set, is that the bank can only sell the bonds back to the government. Um, it can't sell them back to other investors, right? Because is it, that right? Yeah. So, so it can't go back into the secondary no. market and dump it in there and push up interest rates? No, it can't. Because they. So this was put in the rules because they were scared that if the bank could do that, then that would cause dysfunction in the market because Treasury would be trying to issue new bonds, Reserve Bank would be trying to sell old bonds, they'd flood the market, it would cause a big... Well, if dilemma. it's a monetary policy tool and you want to put interest rates up, well, f- yeah, you know, fair, yeah. fair cop. But no, they have to sell them back to the Treasury, right? So now, but now, this is the weird thing. The government might not have enough money just sitting there to buy the bonds, depending on how much the Reserve Bank wants to sell. So there could be a situation, and this is not out of the realms of possibility, where the government has to issue more debt to get enough money to buy the old debt back from the Reserve Bank. Is that, yeah, yeah, no, still I, with me. Well yeah, done. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I can see why uh, the way in which the balance sheet is run down is interesting, and I'm curious about the the order of proceedings. So yeah. the way this started was Reserve Bank cut the official cash rate bit by bit till it got to zero, and then it had an option it could go below zero and worked out that the banking system couldn't handle it. Their computers were so old, a minus was going to um, Cause, cause some sort of alt control delete moment. Uh, and so it said, right, well, we'll do what every other central bank's done, which is buy government bonds to push down lower interest rates. Mm. And so you'd think if that's the last thing you did to uh, loosen monetary policy, then the first thing you do shoot to tighten monetary policy would be to sell those bonds back and to move interest rates that way. But I found it curious that the Reserve Bank has already decided actually that they're going to use the official cash rate to tighten policy rather than managing uh, using the uh, sale of those bonds back mm. into the market to do it. The, the bank has said that the reason for that is that the OCR is better understood, it's more simple, people understand it more and I think if people understand the tool more then it has the desired effect and also the bank understands that tool more. But hiking the OCR versus the bond sales, it might there might be a bit more ambiguity as to how the sale would actually affect the interest rates and particularly the shorter term interest rates, which I think the OCR has a greater effect on, whereas the bonds might affect longer term rates. Yeah. Um, have Has the Reserve Bank said they're going to um, explain their strategy with the February monetary policy statement? Or? They haven't said with the February monetary policy statement, but they said the beginning of the year and the assumption is it might be at the February 23 monetary policy statement. So they have said they want to reduce the size of their bond holdings, it's just they haven't said whether they want to actively sell the bonds or just let them drop off as the bonds mature. Because that would be the most sensible way to do it. Everyone knows what maturity bonds you've got, how many bonds you've got, and if you simply say at the start, we're just going to um, let 
the bonds mature, i.e. when they get to the, you know, January 2025, then it's the government's role to essentially pay out yeah. the money in the same way that um, a normal bond matures. That way, um, the market, which knows the bonds the government's, the Reserve Bank's got, knows that that's how the thing is going to roll off. And that also will give them quite a bit of time because some of those bonds are, you know, 10, 20 year bonds. 20, yeah, it's, well, I, mean, I think that's the issue is that then they'll be holding some of these bonds until 2040 which is a long time. And the other issue that Nick Smythe from BNZ, who's um, a, a strategist who's really into this, has said that, that um, because the, the, the maturities of these bonds that the Reserve Bank holds um, drop off quite in quite lumpy ways, it's not just a nice smooth running off. So you might have no, no um, maturities for seven months and then a massive wad mature and then you have a massive drop off. So it's a, yeah. It would be much more sensible for the Reserve Bank to just, you know, tear up the bonds and shred them and, and just say, don't worry, you don't have to repay. Effectively yeah. monetizing the debt. Right. It sounds like a topic, <laughs> a topic for a different day. That, I'll but, never be um, made a Reserve Bank governor with uh, comments like that. But, um, and I don't think anyone's going to suggest that. No. But um, push comes to shove, uh, that would be the way to solve the problem real fast. The trouble is that would be seen as very inflationary and um, unsettle uh, market confidence in, yeah. in the Reserve Bank and the government. And that's the thing, is that other, the other uh, investors around the world buy these New Zealand government bonds. The exact same bonds that the Reserve Bank has bought, other investors buy. Now, if uh, these other investors think that New Zealand has a shonky government system and, you know, d doesn't stick to the rules and to the conditions, then that ruins investor confidence, you know, and that might harm our ability to borrow for cheap in the future. Yeah, I, I, don't, the, I don't fear the bond vigilantes anymore. Yeah. Um, they are essentially sitting on trillions and trillions of dollars of wealth, which uh, they are being forced by uh, investing mandates and by the very nature of the people who own these bonds, extremely wealthy people, to put it into the uh, lowest risk investment they can, and that means government bonds. Mm. And uh, uh, um, we might be surprised at how how much appetite there is for government bonds, even when a few of them have been ripped up. So I, I mean, yeah. I'm 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 of the um, I'm in the camp that says uh, wait uh, for these things to roll off slowly. Um, tell everyone clearly this is what you're going to do. Everyone knows what's going to happen. Uh, there's going to be no shocks for the market because you're going to just let them roll off. It's going to take a long time, but that's fine. Um, by the time with the current inflation rates we get to the payoff moment, that they're not going to be extremely big relative to GDP. Those yeah. bonds. Um, but the Reserve Bank, depending on how, if it does actively something, the Reserve Bank might want. So it does mean that it has another tool there that it could potentially use. Yes. So we'll see how that um, that works out. Meanwhile. Some of that printed money, in effect, um, went into the uh, housing market, or at least the lower interest rates caused by the printed money went into the housing market. And we're still in this process of working out whether the triple CFA, the Consumer Credit and Contract, credit Contracts, credit contracts finance. Finance, finance, Credit Finance Act. <laughs> I can never remember what the triple C and the uh, triple CFA means, but... Um, uh, obviously in November, December and January, a lot of mortgage brokers and banks were concerned that this act, which was designed to really force loan sharks to um, think about affordability, 
and in theory has been the unintended consequence was to trip up a bunch of um, mortgage brokers and bank managers and force them to um, reject loans. ASB and ANZ have come out and said that these rules effectively meant they are, um, their lending growth was 7% and 8% lower than, than would otherwise have been the case. And it's clear there has been some slowdown of lending uh, to both first home buyers and investors. But um, we've heard from David Clark that he's asked some officials to look at potentially tweaking the legislation so that uh, the banks aren't quite so concerned. And this week, Nicola Willis uh, came out with a proposal to essentially carve the banks out of the triple CFA around mortgage lending and affordability, which David Clark said, yeah, nah. <laughs> he talked to the banks. The banks are happier with faster, smaller tweaks. Um, how do you think this is going to play out? I believe we need to wait uh, to see the data because currently I just, it's basically just all we have is the words of the mortgage brokers who have a vested interest, the banks who have a vested interest, the battler first home buyers who have a vested interest, and uh, I just want to see the numbers. So currently the only numbers that we have are for the December uh, month, and that's when the rules kicked in, but there might be a bit of a lag in terms of those mortgage approvals. So we really need to Also, wait. it was December. It was you know, December. But even if you compare it to the like previous December, it was a slowdown if you compare it you know, month on month. Um, but it was still high, you know, compared to previous years. We sort of need to wait, I think, till the the March data comes out and then make a call. I mean, clearly it will slow things down. You, and but is that a bad thing? Well, you know, as yeah, I mean, it is quite scary as someone who's of the age where people um, are, are buying uh, their first homes considering that there's a real chance mortgage rates could be, say, 8%, right, in the future? I don't right? think that's possible, but, uh, so. but I think right. you know, there are others who think that. Well, I have done these sorts of tests on myself to see whether I could afford mortgage repayments. And, you know, it's, it's quite a scary thought. So I, I do the think... Problem, the problem is, you know, that once you're in, you're effectively protected. Because as we heard from the Finance Minister and the Prime Minister this week, they want to make housing affordable but they don't want house prices to crash because if they did, the last few people who got in before interest rates rose and before the market started falling would be hurt first. Mm. And so what it means in effect is that it incentivizes people with fear of missing out, but also fear of being completely locked out if they aren't in there when the boom comes down uh, to you know really, really stretch themselves. And this is the the issue here, how do you make housing affordable without deliberately or crashing the market or allowing the market to crash mm. when you've got these people who've just gotten in who are the most vulnerable to a crash? Yeah. Well, at this point, there's, the housing is not affordable. I can't see it becoming affordable in the foreseeable future. And uh, even if it came down 10%, it wouldn't be affordable. 30%, that would be a crash. And yes, the people like, you know, in my demographic would be hurt. People in their early 30s Trouble, would be The stuck. thing is, not that many, because the last seven or eight years, the Reserve Bank has been uh, progressively whittling down the um, high LVR lending. Yeah. Uh, and of course... Those people who got in, you know, a year, two, three, four years ago, they've got monstrous amounts of equity. And so even mm. if 
it dropped 30%, they'd still be above water. And even the ones who are a little bit below, with their head a little bit below water, would have no problem servicing the debt because the banks themselves have been doing affordability tests all through that time. And um, I actually think if you did the analysis of you know how many of those recent first home buyers would be in such dire trouble they, that they got kicked out of their house, yeah. I think it'd actually be a tiny, tiny, tiny number. Yeah, the, the serviceability one is the, the piece that worries me more in, in terms of if inflation does get out of hand and if interest rates go up quite a lot, uh, there's a huge difference between a 2% mortgage rate versus even, say, a 6% one. You know, that's tripling the interest rate. So that's where I see a bit more... Yeah, yeah, I'm a little bit less uh, worried about that given the extremely low borrowing costs of the years that have gone by and the fact that um, a lot of people who, you know, in theory have these brutal mortgages are actually paying much lower amounts of their disposable income in uh, mortgage servicing and mortgage repayment than people who are on rents. So um, I don't think there'd be the you know mass rush to exits that others worry about or that the banks would suddenly be panicked into some sort of mass mortgage sale. Mm. Um, and I think people should be less worried about crashing the market. But from a political point of view, mm. it's like Voldemort. <laughs> so you, you'll never see it. Yeah. Hey, we're, we're at our uh, 30 minutes, Janae. Thank you. That was a fascinating uh, was romp around monetary fiscal policy, inflation, wages, and the odd protest here and there. Uh, this has been uh, a uh, hoon of wonks. I'm Bernard Hickey. Thank you, Janae Tipshraney from interest.co.nz. Thanks, Bernard, and thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening to the bond market chat, too. I hope that was bearable. (laughs) (laughs) This is what we do here on uh, Hoon of Wonks. We talk about bond markets and interest rates, and it's fantastic. Ka kite anō.